Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. As fears grow over the spread of the coronavirus, people are panic buying, and as most of us experience, people are emptying supermarket shelves. I was really blessed to find a few corner stores that still had some toilet paper and pasta, and so I bought a small stock of items and went to several neighbouring houses in my streets where I live, just to see if anyone was in need of anything. Well, everyone I met was very grateful for the offer. Now normally when you speak to people about God, they might get a little bit tense, but their tense mood lightens in our conversation as I began to share the hope that I have in the face of the coronavirus. They were very happy to be given a gospel booklet as well that I left in their hands. I even had the chance to pray for a few of them. The exercise was inexpensive and took up very little time. This is something that any of us can do if we try. Any of us can do if we're just bothered enough. You know, as Christians, we have the greatest hope of all. We have the answer. So let us do everything we can, while we can, to show and share that hope with others, as we shared the gospel with a world in need of hope. When did you last have a face-to-face conversation with someone where you shared your Christian faith with them? Do you find it difficult to share the gospel? Hello and welcome to our GCS podcast with international evangelist and author Tony Anthony. We live in a culture where text messages and social media seem to drive our relationships and in-person conversations are often a rarity. But it is often in these face-to-face conversations where we have a chance to learn how to share our faith. How do we reach generation that listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? Let's join Tony as he takes a deeper look at this topic. In previous teaching, I introduced my belief that there are at least four essential areas of content when it comes to presenting a genuine gospel message. That's where we focus on the necessity of telling people why we must be saved and acknowledge that this is a massive stumbling block in a misguided world that is happily ignorant of that fact. Yet to the hearer who actually listens, the next crucial piece of information they need is centred in the person of Jesus Christ, on God's redemption plan, on the good news that there is a boy on the beach, if you remember my starfish story, boy waiting to throw our lifeless bodies back into the reviving water. So the issue of how Jesus can save us could be content for a whole new book. But when we look in the Bible the new, with New Testament eyes, we see that everything points to that one man sent down from his throne in heaven, born in squalor, crucified a criminal and raised to life as saviour of the world for all eternity. There are so many discussions to be had concerning the person of Jesus, evidence of his historical existence, whether he was more than just a good man or a prophet, how he could be both man and God, the influence of his teaching on society's moral code and so on. But for the purpose of communicating the gospel, our focus must remain on Jesus as saviour, Jesus as the solution to the problem of death. The Jesus of John 3.16, you know, God's beloved son given up to death so that we may not die but have eternal life. The reality of Jesus as saviour is what carves out the difference between Christianity and all the other religions. 
And let's face it, when we're communicating God's redemption plan for his people, we have to speak about Jesus. Otherwise, what stops our hearer from looking for gods in Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism or any other form of religion or spirituality? You know, remember Jesus is the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me in John fourteen six. And have you ever stopped to consider the weight of that statement and the consequent weight of responsibility we now have to keep the name of Jesus on our lips? To some, such a statement appears unfashionably exclusive, arrogant even. But then we only need to look at Jesus on the cross to witness sheer humility, ultimate sacrifice and love beyond comprehension. Unlike any other religion in the world or philosophy or way, our God is the only one who demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Also, we read in Colossians chapter 2 verse 14, having cancelled the written codes with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. What other God says, it doesn't matter who you are, come to me. It doesn't matter what you've done, I can forgive you. It doesn't matter how much baggage you're carrying, I'll take your load. It doesn't matter that you've so many questions you can, you can barely believe. I am the answer. What other God says, come just as you are. What other God in their world demonstrates such mercy, such amazing love, such compassion and tenderness? desperate longing for his people and how does he do it through the sacrifice of the one closest to his heart the one who costs him the most his own son you know there was once a man who worked in a small town as the operator of a drawbridge on a river a train track ran across the bridge and the operator's job was to keep the bridge up when no train was coming so the boats could pass underneath and when a train approached, she would blow the whistle and let down the bridge. One sunny Saturday morning, the man brought his young son along to work with him. The boy loved to play along the riverbank, skimming stones in the water and spotting fish. Shortly before noon, a passenger train was due to come through the area. The man began to make preparations to let the bridge down so the train could pass safely across the river. As he examined the bridge, he noticed that a small child had somehow climbed over the guardrail next to the bridge and was playing at the very spot where the bridge would come down. As he looked closer, he realised with horror that the child was his son. In desperation, he yelled out to his son his name, but the sounds of the approaching train drowned out his screams. He knew he had to make a quick decision. If he lowered the bridge, now his son would die. But if he didn't, all the people on the train would die as the train plunged into the river. He barely had time to think. Screaming in agony, the man thrust forward the lever to lower the bridge just as the train arrived. His son died instantly. As the train passed by, the people just smiled and waved at the man in the control booth with his head bowed low. For any parent, this is a dreadful scenario to even contemplate. Jesus himself said, Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. We read in John chapter 15 verse 13. You know, the truth is that 
When God ordained his own son to lay his life down, it was for all of humankind, even those who, like the passengers on the train, remain completely oblivious to the sacrifice made for them. Yet think about those passengers for a moment. How would they feel if they heard what the bridge operator had done? When they were resting at home with their families, their life still stretching out before them, would they not want to thank the bridge operator from the bottom of their heart? Would they not want to prostrate themselves before him in thanks for the sacrifice made so that they could live? What they would not you know, want to give him anything, he asked, an expression of gratitude or, or to serve him in some way, in any way that might ease that agony. And how would the bridge operator feel about those who've never said thank you? You know, who never acknowledges momentous decision? Or what about those who never heard about what had happened that day? Would he regret saving them? Isn't this the, the wretchedness of the gospel that our Father and the Lord Jesus had to bear? What about the millions of people still going about their lives, still making that same train journey, so to speak, without knowing what has been done to save them? How can we not tell them? Some might not even believe when they're told. Could any be so hard-hearted that they don't care? Surely there are many who would want to know. Those who, when they hear and understand what sacrifice has been made in their name, would want to meet the bridge operator and pay every respect to his son. So we come back to this vital piece of information that must be communicated when we are giving the message, the words of the gospel. What he did and what he is and what he offers us is the gospel. Yet how often when we're asked about our faith might we start talking perhaps about the merits of our church or the good things God has given us. Sometimes we hesitate, don't we? And we falter when it comes to speaking the name of Jesus, as though it might offend or embarrass somebody. <laughs> Yet both Mark and Luke records Jesus' severe warning in Luke chapter 9, verse 26. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. We can't expect people to somehow stumble across Jesus. Though God can certainly move in divine power and reveal himself to anyone at any time. He asks that we embrace the Great Commission, that we get stuck in, get our hands dirty, that we speak the name of Jesus and the entire gospel message. When it comes to giving the gospel, it's up to us to be clear in telling people the truth of how Jesus came to save them. You know, previously I, I spoke of four essential areas of content to cover in the gospel message. We've looked at why we must be saved and how Jesus can save us. The next issue is we must be surely looking to communicate is what we must do to be saved. There's something of a spiritual dynamic to consider there. You know, if you've got someone's ear and their their interests and you've spoken to them about the fact that they must be saved and gone on to talk about Jesus' sacrificial act on the cross to save us, they're likely to be coming to a point of wanting to embrace these things for themselves. Just stop to imagine the wider cosmic battle going on here. All over the spiritual realm, there are alarm bells ringing away, aren't there? You know, he's busy realigning his attack, putting together his army in a mighty advance of burning arrows of distraction and destruction. So far, we've, we've only really touched the surface concerning the devil's part in our story. But as we move on, 
hopefully we'll start to see and understand a bit more how he's very much at work muddying the waters, distracting us from the truth and going to any length to prevent someone turning to Christ. He's always looking for any kind of gap so he can get a foothold in the the door. If we fail to progress our discussion from our first two points about the gospel, I believe that we're just allowing that exact thing to happen. You know, we're making space for the devil to creep in and turn our hearer's attention. It's it's so imperative that when we speak of the necessity of being saved and of how Jesus can save us, we follow on with instruction on what we must do to be saved. Obvious. Well, maybe when we're invested time in the notion of God's grace and the fact that Jesus died for us while we're sinners. It's easy to leave people with the opinion that because he did all the work, we, we don't have to. Well, to accept that God loves us is a massive step for some people. To, to accept that Christ died for us is even bigger. How joyful it would be then if we were to leave it at that and, and not see a friend saved because we've told them, we haven't told them the whole picture. We're only giving them part of the story. When someone stops us at the roadside and asks for directions, you know, our natural instinct usually is to be as helpful as possible. We give them as much information as we can, pointing out, you know, helpful landmarks, perhaps giving as thorough direction as we know. It would be rather remiss if, although familiar with the routes, we only bother to tell them, you know, turn around, go back down this road and you'll find it down there somewhere, hopefully. You know, when we know only too well they're about to encounter an unmarked road, probably a one-way street, you know, several roundabouts and complicated intersection. You know, when I'm travelling to a new place, you know, with my assistant, you know, it's always very careful to ensure I've got good directions and, you know, a comprehensive itinerary because my program is normally so busy and so full and this often involves numerous taxis train journeys bus journeys flights extensive details about pickup points and people picking me up you know without such good directions i would inevitably lose my way and probably not even make it to my destination and so my assistants you know does great work managing my itinerary uh, and is really motivated you know um to to make sure that the ministry happens you know, help me get there. It demonstrates, you know, their commitment to see me fulfill my purpose and they showing their care in that whole process. In exactly the same way, I suppose, you know, we're responsible for giving good directions when it comes to our hearer, making a response to the first two points we've communicated. We do it out of love, don't we? And we care for them and we do it out of passion to see them turning and surrendering their life to Christ. We go that extra mile, whatever it takes. I sometimes get a little concerned when people talk about giving their testimony or explaining the gospel in one minute or, or less. OK, so I, I get the idea. But but realistically, what are we saying about the gospel and its importance if we're to reduce its communication to something so concise, so short, so such a bite size? You know, doing street or any other kind of cold approach evangelism is always difficult. You know, time is of the essence. You know, sometimes a passerby will be happy to stop and listen to, you know, whatever you've got to say, but most will hurry on. They'll be mostly irritated, perhaps, by you interfering with them on their journey. Often out of politeness, some might say, "Okay, but I've only got a few minutes or a minute. You know, this is fine if you got their attention, but to imagine you can effectively present the whole gospel in just one minute, well, it's, it's, a, it's folly. 
Charles Spurgeon, when asked to summarise his Christian faith in just a few words, said, Jesus died for me. Dr. J.I. Packer writes, in, you know, in short, the good news is just this, that God has executed his eternal intention of glorifying his son by exalting him as a great saviour for great sinners. You know, these statements are full of truth. They're packed with truth. But realistically, are such quick throwaway phrases alone going to convince the passerby in the street? You know, whenever we're presented with this situation, I'd much rather support my brief announcements with the offer of a tract or a book that just goes into it a, a little bit more deeper. You know, that they can read it themselves later, perhaps, or maybe I can drop them an email later. You know, you know, they need to know that in response to Jesus dying on the cross for them, they must be willing to come under the control of God's Holy Spirit and turn away from the sinful nature, renouncing their old ways and surrendering their life to God's laws of righteousness. You know, centuries ago in China, a teacher practiced a ritual that struck fear and trepidation in the hearts of his young students. He would summon one of his students to the front of the class Hold up both of his clenched fists. Are you brave enough to choose the one hand to reveal the gold coin? He asked sternly. The students knew that if the boy chose correctly, he'd be allowed to keep the prize coin. But if he chose the empty hand, the teacher would strike the boy with his clenched fist. Not much fun, is it? Only the bravest will take the challenge. If it's not you, return to your seat, the teacher would always say. Well, most students, fearful of being beaten, refused to go any further and opted out of the challenge. The ritual was carried out each day in the teacher's classroom. Because the students knew the teacher's strength and skill as a fighter, they were afraid to make a choice. They knew that to be hit by him would result in serious suffering. On the rare occasion that a student would choose a hand, the teacher would ask, Are you sure? As the students looked more closely at the teacher's hard fist and even harder scowl, he would invariably change his mind and hurry back to his seat. One day, a boy named Chin was called to the front of the classroom. Chin's father had died in the wars five years before, and his family was having trouble putting food in the table. Chin really needed the gold coin. The instructor held out his fists, and Chin's classmates held their breath as Chin stood boldly before him. He studied both his teacher's hands for a long time. Finally, he pointed the teacher's left fist. Are you sure? The instructor asked. Chin nodded bravely. Would you like to forget about your choice and return to your seat? The instructor offered. Chin shook his head. The instructor's fist shot out and struck Chin square in the face, knocking him to the floor. The class gasped. Then there was silence. Chin lay on the floor, looking up at his teacher in a daze. The teacher turned both fists over and revealed that each of them held a gold coin. You cannot expect anything for free, he told the class. There is a price that comes with everything. The teacher helped Chin to his feet, smiled and placed both gold coins in his hands. He never repeated the exercise again. Well, interesting. When we speak of God's salvation, we often find ourselves focusing on the truth of God's gift freely given. Certainly, God offers this gift whilst we are still sinners and before we ask for it. The gift has already been presented to us. However, the universal notion of you get nothing for free, there's a cost to everything, is not negated here. There was a massive cost to salvation. 
God sacrificed his son and Jesus gave up his heavenly throne, sacrificed his life with his father and then his physical life when he died on the cross in agony. What greater expense could we imagine? We are also told in the book of Romans that because of our relationship with God as his children, we are his heirs. Romans chapter 8 verse 17. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Scripture is so clear. What are we to conclude then? There most certainly is a cost to following Jesus. The cost is giving him our lives and also rolling up our sleeves and getting involved in fulfilling his purposes in the world. Why then do we so often fail to speak about this when we're trying to communicate the gospel? Jesus didn't. He spoke very clearly about the small gate and the narrow road that leads to life in Matthew chapter 7 verse 14. About losing life to gain it in Matthew chapter 10 verse 39. Willingness to love him more than those we love the most, Matthew chapter 10 verse 37. In these and several other illustrations, he calls for absolute commitment. Can we ever imagine what is really required in taking up our cross, denying ourselves and following him? There's a challenge for you in Mark chapter 8 verse 34, isn't there? Perhaps our hesitance to speak about choice and costs stems from our general resistance to make decisions and commitments. Our society increasingly tells us you don't need to make a choice. You can have both (laughs) or give it a try. If you don't like it, you can bring it back. You know, like the students in the classroom, we are so often afraid of failure, afraid of pain and afraid of commitments. We're not willing to do the hard yard. You know, we're always afraid that it might cost us something, that it might hurt. Yet everything does have a cost and most good things require commitment. It's just quite interesting how we weigh up the costs, even in our church lives. You know, the call to the 7 a.m. prayer meeting, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning. It's a tough one, isn't it? Just too painful, really, and costly for many of us. Yet the Saturday night social, well, that's a different matter, isn't it? We can go along to the games night. (laughs) That's, you know, at 8 o'clock in the evening. You know, and what about the way we spend our money? It's so easy to spend ourselves, you know, uh, yet... Somehow it seems to cost us dearly to give sacrificially to missions that might lead to the eternal salvation of others. You need to be a world champion. You have to work hard. You have to practice. You've got to do the hard yard. To play good football on Saturday morning, you can't have a heavy drinking and clubbing session on Friday night. You have to show up for training. You have to keep fit and you have to commit to being available to play when your team has a match. These are the costs of partaking in the beautiful game. The gospel does cost, and it's not pain-free. It requires commitment, and it can be and often is tough. To give the impression that when we commit to Christ, our life suddenly becomes like a bed of roses is a huge misconception and a danger onto the truth. It's Oswald Chambers who coined a beautiful phrase, my utmost for his highest, all that I am for all that he is. And it is with this commitment that we embrace the gospel. It is also with this commitment that we should approach the Great Commission sacrificially and without embarrassments to speak out, of, uh, out those truths of the gospel. You know, the message that we must be saved, that Jesus can save us, but also that there's a choice to be made and that there will be many costs. We hope you enjoyed the message. 
Please subscribe and leave a rating and review to help others find our podcast. At GCS, our mission is to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us, or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors in Edinburgh, UK.